Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast in Gender Studies and South Asian Studies. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate and Vanier Scholar at York University in Toronto. Today, we are talking to Weber Sarya about their new book, titled Hijra's Lovers Brothers, Surviving Sex and Poverty in Rural India, published by Fordham University Press in 2021. Weber Sarya received their PhD in anthropology from John Hopkins University in 2014 and is currently assistant professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Simon Fraser University. Hijra's Brothers Lovers won the Joseph W. Elder Prize in the Indian Social Sciences in 2021, and it is my absolute pleasure to be speaking to Dr. Sarya today. Um, thank you so much for coming on this show and speaking to us today, Weber. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to what your thoughts were uh, when you read the book and looking forward to our discussion. Um, Perfect. So let's hit the ground running. I'd like to begin by asking you my first question. Could you just tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the framing of this book? In other words, what made you realize this book needs to be written and how does that journey frame the book itself? Um, so I suppose even before the book and the research, what really brought me to, um, I won't even say what brought me to academia, but really what structured my life was in the early to mid 1990s, um, HIV was a very odd thing for me at that point because I was a child. So, but also had the awareness that I was queer. You know, maybe the word was not there, but uh, um, but it was it, it was it was always apparent. It was always there. Uh, HIV, the specter of HIV. Um, and I write a little bit about this um, as how HIV started appearing in my life um, in the last chapter where I talk about seeing this graffiti in a traffic intersection in Calcutta um, and how this was the first time I had seen a certain depiction of effeminacy, but it was linked to HIV. So somehow HIV then also got linked to me. So, and then it was as if a message had been sent that this is how you will die. Uh, 
And in the second half of the 90s, during my teenage years, um, uh, this was before the ma- the huge uh, funded projects that, you know, with all its criticisms really, uh, you know, brought a lot of activists to uh, uh, to the table and they corrected a lot of, uh, of the discourse. But in the late 90s, uh, the public health discourse was really uh, making a schizoid. You know, it was being in a schizoid state of being because... Um, on the one hand, they would say, oh, don't worry, it's a manageable disease and, you know, we have the medications and, you know, and they would have these uh, these posters of people looking very happy and surviving uh, with HIV. On the other hand, you would have, you know, this kind of uh, alarmist, like, oh, it's spreading, you have to be careful. And so basically, you did not get a stable ground at all. So what are we supposed to do? Is it okay and manageable? And should we continue with our life? Or is it something that we should really address? Um, So that had been the question, even before I came to college, you know, like, oh, why are we going to die of uh, of AIDS? and this took me to um, Orissa. Um, it was Orissa at that time. Um, I was introduced to the Hijra communities in uh, Odisha um, by one of the first trans activists in India, Amrita, Amrita Sarkar. Amrita in 2000, in the in around 2000-2001, had started articulating a certain uh, difference between trans and hijras. And, uh, you know, it was because Amrita had been invited to join a lot of uh, hijra gharanas. And um, she herself was trying to articulate why is it that I don't want to join them. so um, Amrita was working in in uh, in a lot of districts in in Odisha, um, and she took me along. Um, and then I reached Bhadrak, and I absolutely fell in love with Jenna. You know, everybody fell in love with Jenna. She was just such a charming person, and. There was just life; just seemed so much more bearable and so so light uh, when Jenna was around. You know, so I was like, okay, this is where <laughs> this is where I'm going to uh, live. Um, and so, so my question, which is like, okay, how do we live with this specter of HIV? Are you know, which is the reason uh, how why we all die. And I came to came with this question to the field, um, and um, basically it was not a very articulate question. I was like, okay, so how are we living with this idea that you know we're all going to eventually die, um, and uh, that grip that mortality had on our lives, right? Now, Jenna, I don't know whether uh, you like this aspect, but I don't mention Jenna's age till the last chapter. Um, Jenna is now in her 80s. Um, So 
a lot of people said it would be very helpful to know that Jenna was already in her 70s, 60s and her 70s uh, when you begin the book because they imagine Jenna as somebody very young, right? But Jenna's actually now in her 80s. Jenna and the others in Bhadrak, they have... I was not the first young person coming to them, you know, uh, with questions about life and, uh, you know, anxieties and depression. And I was not. These were old hands at training young queer people, right? So I reached Bhadrak and I was like, oh, you know, why aren't people using condoms? Do condoms really work? Why aren't we taking medication? You know, is there stigma? And they all listened very patiently, but they really took me in hand, you know, like, okay, you can also join all these young queer people who have fled their homes and villages, uh, some who had HIV and have you know, basically come to um, take shelter. So this is, this is what structured the book. I came with my questions. These old hands were not having any of it, you know. They were like, yes, we've done this before. You're not the first person who's come, you know, uh, asking these questions. Um, not as a researcher, uh, but as a young queer person, you know, um, who's worried about HIV, about family, about life, about future. And uh, so in some ways, she also, uh, they were not interested in my questions and my book. They were more interested in teaching me as a young, young person who had come to them, like, how do you actually live your life? And how do you actually manage this anxiety? So that is what structured the book. And that is the journey of the book. And that's how I suppose it also reads you know, because it's not that it comes up with an articulate question right at the first and then I have an answer and all my research data. It is what they told me. Like, this is what's important. You have to master this. You have to learn this. This is why we do this, etc., etc. And this is how you will survive. So, yeah, that is the, that is why the book reads the way it does. Um, And I think one of the, one of the greatest things about the book is also that um, in a way, you're right, the question does come, I think, in the last chapter as a concluding sort of moment where you're like, oh, but this is this is what I thought when I entered, you know, and it like, it does something then to like a kind of almost retrospective reading of the book then. Yeah. And a lot of things fall, a lot of things fall into place retrospectively, not in terms of the typical structure of a book where it's like, this is my research question, this is how I'm going to introduce the entire framework in the first chapter and then you know the middle chapters of the you know um like the meat and then the last chapter yeah. saying this is what we can do in the future kind of so it's a very different kind of trajectory and i think that trajectory does something to the content of your book itself which is so much around how to live um specifically how to live with the specter of death and hiv how um almost um how to say, like, how useless, for want of a better word, right? Like, how useless the HIV discourse is for actually living life and um, yet how it continues to structure life as well because it's such, an, yeah. it's such a powerful discourse. Yeah. So it's not that you can simply disregard it because it doesn't work for you. You have to continue living with it and negotiating with it in some way. Um I think, you know, I mean, I clearly really love reading the book. 
um and i like the fact that jena was not you know we didn't know how old jena was um it allowed i think it allows the reader to have a very robust imagination of jena and then you reach and like you reach the end and then you're like oh wait okay you know yeah uh, i like i like those moments in the book um yeah so, in some ways uh, the book actually tried to i mean this was not uh done um consciously it was just the book was in some ways uh it reads like a manual you know this is how you live uh with all the kind of constraints that are put before you this is how i was taught so every month every year a new lesson would be taught um it was sort of like it was almost like a travel log um you know like now this happened and this is the lesson jena taught me or damru taught me or shonali taught me um and um so i uh, so when those uh, when the book was first in its dissertation form was uh, the committee read it some of them really appreciated the moment of surprise they were like what is jena is it 80 and they were like oh this makes the book really enjoyable and makes you keep on thinking about the book you know because it's not something you conclude because now you're thinking of the earlier things you had read um i'm thinking gosh this is a 80 year old woman um and some of them were like no that really irritated me that i felt like uh we had been cheated um yeah and i think uh this jena really and the other jena tappi um her lots of chela mangu uh, aktari azgari all of them um you know really broke down this kind of uh this specs uh this uh fear you know by saying that look but on an everyday basis this is what you have to do you know you have to make sure you laugh a little bit you have to make sure you cry a little bit you have to make sure your meals are there you know so stop actually creating these phantoms um really come come to the very everyday acts um and let's see how they get infected or inflected with uh, with hiv yeah i mean okay so we'll jump into the next question which is around what the central arguments of the book really are and how do you structure the chapters specifically so i'm not sure i can give you a very sharp answer to what the central argument is i maybe we can begin by the fact that they really taught me how to uh how to survive you know and um and survive pain survive pleasure uh and really relax the grip that anxieties around uh uh death and dying had and actually you know folds them back into how you live yes that is a fact of life but you know you can't let it have such a suffocating grip on your life how do you actually braid it together so it the book has been the chapters have been structured as how i learned my lesson so the first time i went there jena was you know i was armed with very good um solid anthropological concepts like stigma and shame and so jena took me around um 
and you know you say oh you know this is how you joke with this man and this is how you make them laugh and um you know this is where you can sit down and basically this is how they would spend their days um uh because jenna owned a flower shop near the mazar um in bazrak and um so the marketplace would really come alive with her because she would sing body songs she would make dirty jokes and she would make everybody laugh and and she would say this is very important for you because you're not the only one who is worried about death and dying look everybody around them they have uh their babies might be ill their wives might be ill their fathers their brothers everyone is dealing with this but you have to really fortify yourself so um so that's the first thing that we did you know like uh in the got me very she got me very comfortable in the public space you know by always making jokes it made everybody in the village and the town this district headquarters um familiar with me they were like okay um and we and and that how we would also go travel from jenna's hut to um to let say whoever we were visiting that day um so that's why the first chapter is all about laughter and uh why it's important to make people laugh and what it does and about jokes but you'll see it's also these jokes and these laughters are also they have an undercurrent of a certain kind of pathos you know uh because so much of the jokes and laughters about sex and fucking and but the fact is that along with it comes desires for for babies uh for a certain kind of conjugal uh, mar- uh marital arrangement which they know is impossible so these so this is how they braided life for me you know um yeah you laugh you laugh at your own pain you laugh at other people's pain you sometimes sympathize with it you know um so that was what we did uh for like months um then um you know as uh, more and more conversation happened um and i got to be aware of dynamics in their families you know like who's feeding whom um so then the second chapter ended up being about kinship because um and that was really uh uh that was a, a special chapter because not only jenna and the others uh but their families too involved me you know and they were like okay look these are our concerns you know this is what happened um uh one of the sister got widowed very early and um and she came back to her natal home jenna's home uh with four kids and and how would you ethically deal with these pressures so those kind of kinship dynamics and really clarified the kind of ascetic ethic position that um jenna would teach a lot of us to cultivate right like you know like and this was you know i entered the field and i said oh families won't take care of you families will throw you out if you have hiv and uh what do you do and she said that yes that might be true but what are you doing for your families right and she said look at me 
all of them had responsibilities that they did not sign up for, but uh, they had to execute those duties and responsibilities. So that was the second chapter. The you know after the first few months of laughing and making jokes, um, then you uh, then they uh, as I got more folded into that. Uh, into their kinship arrangements and families or became aware of them. Um, the third chapter, then Shonali was like, okay, now you have to learn how to go on the trains and ask for challa. Now, I would tell Shonali that, look, I'm just interested in interviewing you about how to ask for, you know, why, why is it that money is earned this way. But Shonali, and I would tell her that, you know, like, I think I have a little more employment security. I can do other things. Too. Shonali was not having it. Shonali was like, look, you don't know. For, for Hijra's existence is very fragile. You know, you might get fired from a job. And there were Hijra's who, uh, once it was discovered, they were Hijra's were fired from from jobs. Uh, Master Rani was actually a teacher in in a government school and they made her life hell. Um, so she had to quit the government job and join this uh, Hijra uh, community in Jajpur. So they were also very, so they, I was like, okay, uh, you know, let's just talk about it. But they were like, no, look, you know, you have no idea who will kick you out. You have, you'll have no, uh, uh, if people won't give you any work, how will you, uh, how will you feed yourself? How will you feed others who are dependent on you? So just come. She insisted and she taught me so, uh, I mean, at first I was very scared and I was, um, and I also did not, you know, I wore glasses at that time. So the the train conductor was also very confused as to like, who is this person taking notes while, uh, while begging on the train. Um, But uh, so this, the thought was the, you know, the other thing that we did for some months, which is like, how do you actually get um, control on the affect of shame? Um, because shame in queer theory in is is a very important um, aspect, right? Like Didier Eribon says that there's a very small margin between the person and the affect of shame uh, coming from Sedgwick, um, uh, uh, onwards that shame is actually quite a um, is a structuring affect for queer subjects. So begging on the train was really actually looking was actually learning how to get uh, control over that affect, not to be ashamed. Um, so that was the third chapter. Like, okay, I'm asking you for money, but I'm not going to be ashamed asking you for money. Um, and this is actually signaling a kind of accountability or audit that may not always be very uh, easily put down on paper, but everyone lives in a kind of world where that kind of accountability is important. Um, and that lesson, I must say, has uh, is the strongest lesson that has that I've taken out, uh, that is still with me, um, uh, the kind of uh, how not to feel ashamed. Um, and which is not to say that what emerges in place is pride, which is the project of gay pride. So it's not pride that emerges in place of shame. It is a certain kind of ethical horizon that opens up um, in which they're saying, no, I'm not... I." 
if I'm not ashamed to ask you for money, I'm not ashamed to be a hijra, it does not mean I am proud to be a hijra, but that I am a hijra and you have to account for it. So a certain kind of ethical accountability opens up in the horizon rather than a claim of pride. So that was the third chapter, um, third lesson that we did for a few months. Um, now, uh, there were two sides, Bhadrak and Kalahandi. Kalahandi did not have a train station. And that's why I chose uh, Kalahandi as a second side. Also because Damru, who was my age, was also equally charming and invited me. Like, you know, you can also spend a year here. Um, and the fourth chapter really comes mostly on from Kalahandi because Hijaz and Kalahandi were my age. They were young. So, and we were all obsessed with love affairs. You know, when will we fall in love? When will we have our great uh, passion that will completely redefine our lives for us? You know, completely in a very soupiastic way, completely, you know, demolish us. When will that kind of love affair happen to us? You know, that's all we spoke about in Kalahandi for a year, for a year that, oh, you know, is he the person, is he the person who's going to fall? So that was the fourth chapter, basically about, you know, spending hours and hours and hours about choreographing love affairs. Um, that, oh, he slipped this message, he slipped that message, and he didn't call me and things like that. Um, so yeah that is how the book book is structured it's really almost chronologically you know like what I what was considered by uh, my informants that I should learn um, and they like lesson one lesson two lesson three so that's how the book was structured and I think as you describe it it makes so much sense um to have read the book and then to kind of again retrospectively something about what you say makes sense about the book you know um but across i think the chapters even though as you rightly point out love and kinship and um laughing and you know even death like they form important aspects of how um i guess life is lived but asceticism is like something that uh, kind of continuously remains as a very solid strand throughout all the chapters. And it seems that you're making an argument for asceticism in a very specific way. Mm. So I was curious as to why that became an important concept for you. Yeah, you're, you know... Um... You're a very sensitive reader because uh, it did become important to me because I did not pay any attention to all uh, religious aspects. And my question was like with HIV, how do we actually live with it? You know, how will we make sure that we get the medicines? How will we make sure that we can get condoms? How will we make sure that we will live if we get diagnosed, etc. Right? And and Gayatri Reddy, who's, you know, like foundational bedrock ethnography um not just for south asia or queer but i think it's you know it's a book that i constantly keep on going back to she mentioned in the book uh which you know uh, that hijras only became sexual figures or sexual subjects for the state post hiv and previously they were mostly considered religious figures and i did not pay any attention to that i was like ah, okay fine 
I am interested in how we survive HIV. I'm really not interested in all this, uh, you know, religious significance. I did not pay attention that much to what was the, um, to asceticism when I, like, very badly read on asceticism, just knowing that, yes, uh, uh, Reddy has mentioned it, um, and I will encounter it in the field, but really this is not what I'm interested in. I go to the field, and I, Jenna's lessons, and Shonali's lessons, and Damru, and everybody is talking about what would be ethical. And what would be ethical is uh, them coming out of their ideas of religious ethics and moral ethics, right? And so ethics forms like a common point where I'm like, will my family feed me, you know, if I am unwell? And um, then I would say, is that an ethical question to ask? You know, like, what about today when you have young children in your family who are hungry, right? Um, so so that all these questions about ethics and what you, what you should do in the face of death um, and how does it get braided into, how life and that get braided into everyday ordinary existence, ordinary life, um, uh, suddenly made that kind of um, ethical crafting of, of, of the self um, brought asceticism to the fore. So that's when I went back to asceticism and um, opened up uh, religious studies to Foucault uh, by saying, what am I doing when I'm taking care of myself? What the others? What is the kind of spiritual muscles that I have to build up? Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so when reading on asceticism, I found, obviously it is, you know, Dumont, who brings it to, uh, opens, op- starts the question, the line of inquiry that, oh, it's the, di- it's the, you know, it's uh, the renouncer that is the most enigmatic uh, figure in South Asian traditions. Um, and then he and Mother and Bina Das, and they're like, actually, it's the dialogue between the householder and the renouncer. And then Patrick Oliver uh, brings the body into into the question. Um, And Foucault obviously talking about the care of the self and the subject. Um, So that's how asceticism entered the, the, the book because they weren't, hijras were not passive in any of the sites where, okay, the state is doing this this is happening and we're just letting it happen to us on an everyday level. It was very uh, complex uh, negotiation and crafting of like, how do I actually do right, not just to myself, but to the others as well. Um, So that's how asceticism entered the book. Um, uh, And then it gets anchored. Then I went back to that QPD and... um, showed how Hijra's offered a different asceticism, this this dialogue between the ascetic, the renouncer, the householder, and the sovereign, the king, is really an allegory of semen, right? Like who retains the semen, who uh, who expels it correctly, who can uh, expel it in 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 many ways, right? Also to the the prostitute, but also to the queen. 
So it's really an allegory of semen. So if we use semen uh, and ask, okay, then what is the asceticism of hijras doing where semen is not being produced but absorbed, uh, opened up an entire new dialogue as to how sexuality is imagined and love is imagined. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also like, uh, I mean, you explain it beautifully, but even in the book, I think there's a very interesting thing that happens when you keep referring to asceticism as a way of life in conditions where, you know, specifically when it speaks to HIV, the death surrounding HIV. And, you know, so in a way, it's not exactly something shifts in this conversation that you have in the book because it's not exactly renunciation. It's not exactly, um, uh, you know, a kind of disregard for ethics because, oh, we are going to die anyway. So there's something very interesting that happens. And I think that's such a key um, learning from your book itself that you bring into it. Um, I actually will now shift to a kind of, question that I had in terms of methodology which is that you talk about how you did ethnographic research for almost a decade uh, or maybe exactly a decade actually and on and off and then you end up writing this book and you know the book is actually a very very grounded kind of um, writing in the day-to-day lives of hijras in rural Odisha. So I I was actually very curious as to uh, how you did negotiate the act of writing with this decade long ethnography and then um, what you were able to write, what you were not able to put into words, uh, Mm. what happens in the writing process itself. Yeah, I think... It, so writing did not come at the last stage. It really happened while I was doing field work, right? Because, so I also feel like I should not, I should just say that this book has been literally typed by me, but I should not say that I actually wrote this book because, because as I said, um, my informants were such old hands at taking care of young queer people, they would tell you, write this, this is important, right? Um, They were sort of like PhD supervisors, you know, like take notes, this is important. So this is what I mean. It's actually, uh, that's why the book reads somewhat like a manual because it's not as if I would go there and we would have a lovely chat and everything. They were really invested in and I was not the only young person <laughs> Pyle was there Pyle I mean with Pyle she was not asked to write because Pyle was like often smacked by her guru by saying why don't you remember this you know you have to do this uh, this is how you protect yourself with me uh, they quickly realized that oh this one will write and that is how things will remain in one so writing did not happen at the last stage like all of them would, as soon as I would come, they were like, oh, please open your notebook. Now, this is what is important. This is the myth. This is what happened. This is what happened in, you know, when Siddiqui was alive. This is so, yeah, I did not, I feel like I just typed or wrote, like literally took down what they were saying. I did not 
Um, so even when in this conversation, when you say, oh, you wrote, and I'm like, I'm not really sure I did that because I came and then I came back from the field with, you know, uh, like, oh, these are my notes. And this is how all my informants have also organized everything that I need to learn. I think Veena, uh, Veena Das, my supervisor, was like, okay, yes, well, your chapters are arranged, then go ahead and fix all this. And um there was like having a lot of PhD supervisors, like arrange, you know, answering your questions, somebody in the academy, somebody in life. So, yeah, so writing did not happen at the last stage, um, only because my informants were very, very aware of what I needed to know to survive. So even Damru, who was my age, would give me very long histories of... um of, of Bhavani Patna, the district headquarters in Kalahandi, as to how uh, Hijra survived there. You know, like when they had a shop, the shop got removed because of road extension. Um, you know, when HIV came and suddenly these hotspots cleared up because everyone was scared, these new hotspots opened up. Um, and so, yeah, I did not have to do much uh, thinking, you know. I don't think I'm even that intelligent to do this kind of thinking. Uh, uh, my informants who had, uh, you know, vast uh, wealth of knowledge on how do you actually survive and live with pleasure and pain um, in the context of poverty, they did most of the work, uh, you know, um, I guess I'm very lucky that way because a lot of people, when I was writing my dissertation, <laughs> they were like, oh, writing is so difficult. And I was like, oh, I already have 300 pages of analysis, you know, because they would also analyze it for you. So that's the way writing took. That's why the book is not that, it's, it's somewhat different uh, from the dissertation as it entered into dialogue with people outside my committees and the wider audience um, in conferences, etc. But I would say like the bones, the skeleton of the book is pretty much um, just the same because that's what you get from having very intelligent informants, you know, who tell you about life. You don't have to do much work. You're just taking, they're taking down notes and... Um, yeah. So, so that but was I think this is also. <laughs> I think this is also great because, um, you know, we see here in this conversation exactly the sentiment you bring into the book as an ethnographer. You know, like this is exactly how closely you stick to what your participants are saying, what they are doing, how they are living their lives. So, you know, what you're saying right now about them writing the ethnography or the ethnography yeah. being written just by virtue of them being around I think that's what we see in the book and um I I find that one of the most beautiful things about the book that like it it remains so closely tied to who they are and you know I think it's also an ethical position that you take that you know you remain true to who they are in all their fullness right yeah. and you don't try to in your own words like you don't try to do too much to what they give you yeah. um Although, like, I, I wouldn't agree. I think, like, you know, you do a lot of, like, a lot of the research and the framework setting. But um, I think your ethical position is that you will not do too much to what they actually presented you with. Yeah. Um, I don't think I, I don't think I actually took an ethical position because, as I said, you know, this 
this grip uh, that fear had on me and so many others who have died of HIV. It was this book is sort of like a manual. This is how they said, okay, this is how you live with that fear. Uh, this is how you dispel that fear. So the book was also kind of a relief because I was like, oh, thank God, now I know some answers, you know, what, uh, you know, how I live. Uh, so it wasn't an actively ethical position. In that way, the book was is very honest to the question that I had. Um, because it's, it's very selfish as well, you know, uh, in, that, uh, in that regard that, oh, I should really open up my question to what the academy or other people in academia would also have about me. But, you know, I was like, no, this is what structured and bothered me about my life. These are the answers I've got from the right, right teachers, and uh, hopefully it will help the readers. Um, but if it doesn't, then that's also fine, you know, so, yeah. Um, I'll also now talk about a little bit what was another thing that was very, I think, interesting and central to your book in my reading, which was the concept of a diagonal orientation, right? And you keep returning to that over and over again across the chapters that there is a diagonal orientation in how um, your participants are relating to the world. And I guess... I'm just curious if you could say something more about the work this diagonal orientation does and what does it offer us as readers? What did it offer to you as an ethnographer even? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's very well articulated. Um, so obviously one of the sites, one of the fields in which we learn uh, about HIV is queer theory. and um, and uh, I had read uh, No Future, Edelman's uh, No Future. And um, I know you're very fond of Lacan, but uh, me, my, with me, I returned to Freud through a different genealogy, Laplanche, Bersani, Laplanche, and then Freud, rather than... So Edelman's book was... A, not just a provocation for me, but for a lot of people, because he uh, inserted the the figure of the child, and uh, the the figure he draws is of such uh, productive conflicts. You know, productive in the sense that it produces this conflict produces meaning. This negation produces meaning between the queer figure and the child, right? I reach the field and hijras are surrounded by children all the time. Um, like Jaira, the widow, her four children were brought up by Jaina, as Gadi was bringing up her, uh, her sister, uh, her daughter's uh, uh, children. Everybody was raising children that were not theirs. And I was like, okay, this is kind of like a very... Uh, and the... And, you know, I would ask them, I was like, why are you raising this child? You know, and they would be like, what do you mean? You know, like, what do you want me to do? Throw the child on the road? Uh, who will feed the baby? Who will, you know? 
And um, so I said, okay, then Edelman needs to be at least revised a little bit, given that children and hijras are both uh, uh, living their lives, even though this kind of negation of meaning might be true. But uh, I think Lacan needs to be taught a lesson from from uh, from the hijras in 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 Odisha. So that's how the diagonal came into the picture because in between the uh, heteronormative family that seems so sufficient in reproducing itself and reproducing meaning by negating the queer figure over you say over in in odisha you saw that it might be true but at, at the level of everyday life ordinary pleasures and pains and ordinary meanings and actual sustenance was dependent on the queer figure. And one of the uh, reviewers of the book really summed it up very well uh, when they wrote that um, poverty actually shifts the coordinates of queer theory. And I borrowed that phrase as well, because I think that is what the diagonal is. Um, it is bringing uh, class back into the question of queer theory that, sure, meaning and everything is all very good, but how are you actually getting food in your belly? Um, and hijras were very important for that um, in the context of poverty. So that's how diagonal slowly got articulated that, yes, we're not, uh, you know, we're not signatures to these children and to futurity that Edelman talks about uh, when discussing um, Hamlet. Um, uh, but they are very important to uh, to everyday life and ordinary existence. Uh, not this dramatic hunt for the meaning, but maybe some comfort. Yeah. And I think you, you describe it really well right now that the... Uh, I think poverty comes alive in the book in a very, very different way than we are used to seeing it or not seeing it at all in like a lot of queer theory. And uh, it actually, many parts of the book made me think about how even in the pandemic, there is um, there was this huge articulation that poor people in India are not taking the pandemic seriously, you know? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, but there is so much risk in their lives that COVID is not a risk in that way. Yeah. So, you know... And I think there's something very similar about questions of risk, about questions of life, survival, ethics that like are almost, you know, stitched through with the question of poverty. And you you do that really well. Yeah. Um, so you know, the same thing is happening right now um, with um uh, So, for example, uh, Merad used to take care of uh, this child who had been orphaned because of HIV, the child, both their parents had died of HIV and the child had HIV. Um, and the same thing is happening with COVID. Like my WhatsApp is flooded with uh, with my informants sending pictures of orphans that they have now inherited, you know, or the responsibility now given to them because the extended family does not have the resources with the lockdown and the economic downturn. Uh, so they, they're sending me pictures of how now a lot of them have become mothers again because now they are raising these babies. Um, so um, in that way, this lesson, uh, 
that uh, this lesson just keeps on repeating itself about how poverty really uh, brings the queer figure and the child together. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, and I think also it gives us so much to think about in 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 terms of queer queer theory or even understanding queerness, right? And um, very quickly, I think I'd like to clarify that in my reading, you're not suggesting what I think a lot of feminists have suggested in the past, or even a lot of political theorists have suggested in the past that poverty disallows a queer sex life. But that's mm. not what you're saying. What yeah. you're saying is that queerness is just reconfigured in a very different way and the questions are very different yeah. when poverty is involved, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, okay, so again, one of the, I suppose one of the questions that I did want to ask is, uh, you know, what are, what, are the, some of the, what are some of the provocations that you would like to leave your reader with? You know, um, hmm. I think I don't know whether I have an answer to that, but I can tell you what are the provocations that readers like you are presenting to me because a lot of these readers have reached out and they're like, oh, we're really interested in, uh, you know, why is it that you don't talk about this and why is it that you don't talk about that? I think one of uh, the concerns that a lot of readers have had and uh, which is of caste and um, and it's coming from this um, from this slew of very good work on on uh, uh, on South Asia queer South Asia and um, so I've gotten very good questions on uh, so regarding shame, somebody asked me about, okay, how does this tie to the long history of the self-respect movement? Um, and do you see any kind of correspondence there between uh, uh, Dalit history and Dalit anthropology and queer anthropology? So that is something I'm taking forward. Um, and uh, the figure of the child, I think, has come across to a lot of readers. Um, so one of the questions that has emerged is um, how trans kids are treated here in 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 North America versus uh, kids trans kids in in South Asia, um, and that uh, was also a very productive conversation where. Kay Meadows' work shows, you know, how parents have such a strong grip on 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 trans kids, um, and what what is the effect that ha- that it has on trans communities. Um, and there was a documentary where and uh, where a trans activist said that parents, how do we know that parents are the best people to deal with trans kids? Um, and that's what a lot of hijras would agree with. Like, no, your biological natal family is not. The, that's the family where, that's the site where violence happens. They are the ones that have kicked you out, right? So that's why you're here. So they should not have any say in what your life should be, but your community should. Um, so that so those are the ways in which conversation is moving ahead, um, tying this book to 
um, to other forms, other histories and lineages of activism that have affect built into them, like the, the self-respect movement and Dalit anthropology and children, anthropology of children. Yeah. Um, and I think that's so exciting as, you know, as you say, people are reaching out and they're clearly engaging with the work in a way that um, I think also expands the horizons beyond what you at least write in the book, you know, yeah. if not if not beyond what you imagined beforehand. Um, and I think finally, just some questions about what kind of work you're doing in the future. Are you working on some interesting projects that you'd like to talk about? Um, yes, I am actually in the middle of drafting uh, uh, this book that I'm co-writing with um, with uh, well I'm drafting I don't know whether my co-writers will agree to have their names put on it uh, but after 2014 after I graduated I got an opportunity to join this really interdisciplinary team um, uh, the PIs were Jishnu Das, who's an economist, a health economist, and Madhukar Pai at McGill, um, a TB uh, expert in public health. Um, Veena, uh, Veena Das, uh, was trying to... Uh, uh, use, this project is about looking at how ethnography and anthropology can actually inform other methods uh, so not just an ethnography of a health intervention, but how does anthropology and ethnography affect other methods? Um, so all of us, I got involved, thankfully, in this team. And uh, we were trying to figure out how to make a health intervention regarding tuberculosis successful, like what needs to be changed in the intervention, uh, and uh, what kind of issues uh, can be resolved? How can it be resolved? How do we articulate those issues? So after seven years, I'm still not sure whether I have clear answers, but I'm drafting this, uh, you know, whatever, once again, I found uh, in the field, and I'm hoping uh, my co-authors will uh, at least engage with it in a way that people won't say, oh, this is just rubbish and you know, we're not putting our names to it, but we'll find something to bite on and um, and uh, and hopefully it'll be an exciting book. So yeah, that's what I'm in the middle of. Yeah. That does sound very exciting. Um, and I'll, I'll definitely wait for, <laughs> I'll definitely you. wait for it whenever it, whenever it comes. Um, thank you so much for talking to us today, Weber. And, you know, for our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation and will enjoy the book. Um, and I'll see everybody in the next podcast. Thank you, Shraddha.